over the years, people have sometimes said the most popular Bible verse is John 3.16. It's on coffee mugs and t-shirts, and it's on smartphone cases and wall art and bumper stickers, and you can, you've seen it everywhere, and I've seen it everywhere. And it's a famous verse for good reason. People love John 3.16 for the reasons that ought to be obvious to us. It talks about God's love toward the world. And that the way he demonstrated his love toward the world was the sending of his son. And then that verse has a beloved promise, doesn't it? Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And John 3.16, being rightly beloved, uh, appears in a series of verses. And I wonder if we know what comes right before John 3.16. It might have been a while since we were reading... John 3, 14 and 15, which leads into the most popular verse in the Bible. And here's what John 3, 14 and 15 say. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he... And so then John 3, 16 kicks in, right? But before this famous verse is a reference to an Old Testament story. And not a reference to just any Old Testament story, but Numbers 21. The passage we find ourselves in this morning in the providence of the Lord. And we will understand the words of Jesus better by thinking about Numbers 21. We will understand the brilliance and the glory of John 3.16 more brightly and rejoice more fully when we see how God has prepared the way in such Old Testament stories as this one. We have to remember where we are and when we are. We thought about this language last week and we'll do so again today. Where we are, the Israelites are between Egypt and the promised land. They've been wandering for many years and God is going to deliver the land to them in the generation that has been growing up in the wilderness. So where they are, as they have been redeemed from bondage, they are not yet in the promised land, but they are very close to it. When are we? Well, the when is answered by the number of the last year of Israel's wandering. It is the 40th year of Israel's wilderness wandering. Miriam has died. Aaron has died. Moses will die, not yet, but he himself will die before inheriting the land. When we read Numbers 21 together, we are part of that transition story heading into this upcoming generation taking the promised land. This chapter consists of two main things. A battle in verses 1 to 3. And then an episode, a very disturbing episode involving serpents and the threat of death in verses 4 to 9. We see a battle and then an episode involving the threat of deadly serpents in verses 4 to 9. Look together with me at the battle. There is a victory that is reported. This is really good news because you know what the wilderness years have not consisted of? Israel having stories of victory in their midst. Rather... They have been denied entrance to the promised land. And much earlier in their years, really near the beginning, they have in Numbers 14 a terrible defeat. Some of them had thought, we'll go near the land in the south and we'll go through that border and we'll take the land anyway because the Lord had been displeased with our lack of faith. They, they may have meant well at the end of Numbers 14, 
but they had already said too much and done too much to where they would be disinherited and barred from the land. When they decided to go in against the Lord's instruction now, they faced defeat. And you know where they faced defeat? The place we arrive at in Numbers 21. The place called Hormah. Years earlier, they were defeated. Years later, they will receive victory. Something has changed. Something on the timetable has shifted. They have now, many years later, come full circle back to this very familiar spot. And here's the way the story goes in verses 1 to 3. There's a Canaanite king. He's the king of a town called Arad. And this king lived in the desert, a desert area called the Negev. And if you wanted to go south, not south in the promised land, but through the southern border, if you wanted to go north into the promised land through the southern border, you went through the Negev desert, and in this was a place called Arad, and here's this king. Well, he hears Israel is coming. They're coming by the way of the Atharim, which was a particular path. And he's thinking, he's thinking strategically here, I have the ability to come against them, so I shall. I'm where I need to be. They're coming where I would need them to be. And so, you know, just do the uh, military math there. This looks like the right move. And so he comes against them and fights. He fought against Israel. And it looks in verse 1 as if he has a degree of success. We're already concerned here because earlier we've seen in Numbers the people fall before their enemies at the end of Numbers 14. Their wilderness years have not been characterized by victory and wisdom and goodness, but rather suspicion and murmuring and unbelief and rebellion. Numbers 10 to 20 has given us a series of episodes to leave us distressed as readers. We want the Israelites to look to the Lord. We want them to trust the Lord. We want them to have victory in the Lord. So we wonder what will happen here. If history will just replay itself, as we've earlier seen, or if we're set up to expect something in the past, and then a different result. And of course, it's the latter in this case, a different result. We're told in verse 1, however, the seriousness of the stakes. He has taken, this king has taken, Israelites captive. Meaning they would have friends and family members and tribal members, people that they have camped with and journeyed with, who have been kidnapped by a Canaanite army. And this would leave them, no doubt, in a situation of emotional and physical and spiritual turmoil. Here they have had some kind of invasion of sorts by this king of Arad, and they have had people taken from them. They come and pray to the Lord. Now, the reader ought to be automatically encouraged by this because turning to the Lord with trust and hope is not exactly what's characterized a lot of previous episodes in Numbers. But it is what the Israelites do here. In verse 2, they vow a vow to the Lord. They want the Lord to deliver a victory for the people of Israel. And they say, if you will indeed give this people, that's the uh, army of Arad, if you will give this people into my hand, And I will devote their cities to destruction. They are speaking with one voice. I will devote their cities to destruction. It's as if Israel in a collective singular is proclaiming what they will do for Yahweh's name. And these are the enemies of Yahweh who have opposed the people of Yahweh. 
And Abraham had been told much earlier in Genesis 12, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I I will curse. And they are saying to the Lord, Lord, will you deliver those who have cursed your people into our hand? Overcome your enemies. They vow this vow to the Lord and they promise to devote cities to destruction, which is a way of talking about the military fortresses and might and idolatrous places that they would be disassembled, demolished, a foreshadowing even of what will happen in the book of Joshua when the Israelites enter the land of Canaan. We wonder what the Lord will say. The king of Arad has come up against them. People from Israel have been taken captive. They come to the Lord in prayer. And in verse 3, the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. And they, Israel, devoted them, the Canaanites, and their cities to destruction. This means in the region of the Negev, where the king of Arad had been stationed, that location is subdued by the people of God for the glory of God and the enemies and the evil ones have been overcome. So the name of that place was called Hormah. That name Hormah we have seen from Numbers 14. I mentioned earlier, they're full circle now, aren't they? They have been defeated in Numbers 14 at Hormah. And the word destruction seemed to denote their own. But now here in Numbers 21, this place Hormah does no longer first and foremost denote their destruction, but the defeat of the enemies of God. And that's really good news in verses 1 to 3. But then. But then. In verses 4 through 9, there is an event that takes place in the wilderness that can often feel like the kind of journey our own Christian lives consist of. We might experience what seems like incredible blessing and victory in something only to be followed by some crushing defeat or unexpected kink in the circumstances. And we think I did not see this coming, not after the mountaintop, if you will, followed by this valley unforeseen. And the Israelites have this story right after a victory. I think it's important to see them back to back. Then we look at them together, juxtaposed, paired together, a victory of Israel over their enemies, and then a murmuring and a turning of Israel against the Lord. See, the key here is that both the Canaanites and the Israelites should turn to Yahweh. And if the Canaanites oppose the Lord, that will bring trouble. And if the Israelites oppose the Lord, that will bring trouble. They cannot say, oh, it doesn't matter what words we say or what the state of our heart is like. We're the Israelites. Well, you couldn't square that line of thinking with this passage. In verses 4 to 9, from Mount Hor, they set out again. Mount Hor was the mountain Aaron died upon. And so with Aaron's recent death and with a recent victory in their wake in verses 1 to 3, Israel sets to go around the land of Edom. And the reader must be reminded why that was necessary. They're so close to the promised land. Why can't they just go right through? Not only have they faced a recent victory, um, or I should say not just a victory, but before that a battle that would lead to a victory. Perhaps they would not desire more battles. And if this was an area that would be embattled initially, going a different direction would seem prudent. But they couldn't just go through the land of Edom and to the eastern side of the Jordan River because Edom had forbade Israel to go through. You have to remember Numbers chapter 20 and verses 14 to 21 for that story. 
And in, ver- in chapter 20, verses 14 to 21, Israel said to the people and leaders of Edom, we want to pass through. Edom said, you're not coming, and if you try it, we'll kill you. That's a paraphrase, but that's basically what they said. We're going to come out against you with the sword. Okay, so that's a threat of death. And so they have to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Haven't you had plenty of times where you did not start out impatient? But, but on the way, along the way, and depending on what it meant for you in the travel, things began to shift inwardly and you could tell. They didn't start out that way. But along the way, and what is it that in Israel's case played into that? Well, the first thing we'd want to notice is that they're having to go around the land of Edom. They're not even going the way they wanted to. Earlier, they had desired the way of Edom. And if they had gone the way of Edom in in Numbers 20 like they wanted, they wouldn't even have faced the battle with the king of Arad, which might have gone one way or another from their perspective. And so they had to face a battle that wouldn't have been faced if they had gone through Edom. And now they have to go around, which is a much longer journey. That means the timing and the place and the circumstances are not what they want. And don't we all realize that's exactly what stirs impatience. When we have things that we want in one particular way and at one particular time because we want to run the show. And the Israelites here push against the providence of the Lord. They are impatient on the way. And every human being reading the book of Numbers can understand this. Even though they've experienced a recent victory, that doesn't sustain them. They don't think to themselves, well, you know what, I have to go around Edom. But listen, we had a recent defeat of a Canaanite king. I mean, that's really good news. So let's just remember that and have that good perspective. And then we'll just travel. It'll be fine. Even the recent victory was not sufficient in their minds to carry them through with faithfulness and trust. And they became impatient along the way. And the way it's expressed is with words of murmuring and complaint and criticism. That is what those words usher forth from. A heart of impatience and frustration. The state of their heart is what gives way to the kinds of words that we read. And so if in verse 5 we think, my goodness, look at the words they said. The reason the words are the way they are is because their hearts were the way they were. And in verse 5, here's the way they speak. They speak first against God and against Moses. And in their question, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? It is a kind of familiar question, isn't it? We've seen numbers enough. To where we look at this and we're not surprised that they bring up Egypt. They keep, they keep bringing up Egypt. They don't talk about any other place in their past. They're just like, oh, Egypt. And what they struggle with is accurately seeing what God has delivered them from. They look back to Egypt and they feel a draw. Because it does not strike them with the kind of alarm and bondage that in reality it most certainly represented for them. And they look at where God has brought them now and not everything is the way they want it to be. So they feel dissatisfied and discontent with what's here. And their discontentment distorts their vision of what they've been delivered from. And the promised land doesn't draw them as it should. 
If their heart is filled with ingratitude and discontentment, a desire to be God rather than trust God, a desire to run the show rather than trust the providence of the Lord that will guide them the long way around Edom, then not only will they not see their past deliverance the way they should, they won't look ahead with the hope toward the promised land the way they should. Their present murmuring and state of heart distorts in both directions. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Well, can't we answer that question? We know enough of the Old Testament as readers to be able to say, why did you bring them out of Egypt? Because they cried out for deliverance and you're covenantally faithful to your promises, Lord. That's why you brought them out. Because they needed deliverance and you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. That's why you brought them out. Because your power was greater than all the Egyptian military and all the Egyptian gods who could be as nothing before Yahweh. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? To fulfill promises to take them to a land that the forefathers of Israel had heard of. We know how to answer this question. But then their complaint, most specifically, returns to food and water. Oh, we've heard this before. We have heard them bring up their past in Egypt in a distorted way. And we've heard them bring up their present circumstances with ingratitude in their words. We think about Thanksgiving this week especially. And the tone of the Israelites from Numbers 10 to 20 so far, and now into 21 as we're entering into this chapter, we don't look at them and we think, my goodness, what a grateful people. I mean, look at them. It's just everything they say. They're just so trusting in the Lord. And they look at His providence and they say, listen, we're going to make it. They say, not only why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, I sort of smile when you read the full sentence. Because at first, they're saying there's no food and no water. And then they say, and we loathe the food that we have. Now, now they have food, and the reason they're saying there's no food is they are exaggerating the circumstances. And that's another thing that ingratitude would produce. Ingratitude not only distorts our view of God's deliverance, and not only distorts our view of the coming promises that he will deliver in his faithfulness and the hope, we will exaggerate the certain set of circumstances that are so distressing and so discouraging where they have food, but they are talking like they don't. They don't want what they have. That's the problem. They're not grateful for what God has given. That's a core issue. So they're talking about like they have no food when they do. They have no water, they say, but God has provided water even miraculously, on more than one occasion. You would hope that the longer they journey as a people with God, that they will say, listen, God has been faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. Food, water, lodging, deliverance, enemies, whatever has set before us, we have been shown we can trust the Lord. But we are so like this, aren't we? That even with a victory over Canaanites like one to three could symbolize in our own lives where we experience blessing from the Lord and victory in the Lord. It is so easy to murmur when things are not what we want them to be. And it can distort our understanding of what God has brought us from. 
And it can blind us toward the great hope he has before us that he is faithfully leading to. And rather than saying, great is thy faithfulness, we end up experiencing great unfaithfulness within our own hearts. There is no food, no water. We load this worthless food. None of this justifies the sort of words and actions. This is a kind of rebellion. Now, you might even wonder as a reader, why are we seeing this kind of language again? Well, earlier, these episodes of complaint about food and water were primarily from the lips of the older generation that was dying in the wilderness. What primarily characterizes the Israelite congregation now? Those that have grown up in the wilderness, who've been born, and those who were younger earlier on, but are now full-grown adults and have children and grandchildren of their own. These are people who have grown up. We worry about how challenging sin seems to be. That it's not like a generational problem. Oh, you know what will get rid of criticism and murmuring and unbelief? Maybe a generational shift. No, turns out that's not the case. Turns out the problem of sin is not a problem solved by time. It turns out that the problem of sin is something that is still present in the wilderness. And that though these people die from that tribe, these people growing up in the tribe over here, they turn out to be sinners as well. In verse 6, there's a judgment from the Lord. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. This is a bracing response, isn't it? You sort of read this and hold on and think, my goodness, the horror of snakes being unleashed in this language, fiery serpents, no doubt talking about the feeling of their bite and the venomous nature of their bite. And we know this has a venomous nature because of the result of death. And these are not grass snakes wandering in the wilderness, okay? This is in verse 6 here, dangerous, threatening, and even aggressive serpents. Fiery serpents that no doubt are unleashed among the people that were already a kind of serpent breed present in this wilderness area. Archaeologists and other historians have recognized in the records of the ancient Near East and even part of what you can notice in the present day are certain kinds of venomous serpents in this part of the world. And the people of God have experienced the protection of God. He has guided them through. We don't see this as a kind of description as something, oh my goodness, more fiery serpents along the way. This is the first time we see something like this. And so rather than recognizing that God has delivered us and guided us and guarded us, they long for Egypt. And you know something that is associated with Egypt in the book of Exodus? Serpents. We see this when Aaron and Moses come before mighty Pharaoh and their staff becomes a serpent and eats that of the magician's staffs. We even notice the headband of Pharaoh itself had an insignia of a serpent on it. We can recognize how far back this goes earlier than even Egypt. We see in the garden setting of Genesis 2 and 3. An evil one who comes in the form of a serpent to deceive and subdue God's image bearers. We don't associate serpents with victory and blessing, but rather antagonism and evil and bondage. And if the people want Egypt so badly, 
then a brief reminder might be helpful to clarify that Egypt doesn't mean life for them. It means death for them. Fiery serpents are sent among the people and they bite the people. So that many people of Israel died. That means there is a poison at work. But see, if the people are more concerned about the poison in the snake bite than the toxic poison in their heart, they're not concerned about the most pressing matter. They're not just sick physically. The problem of what this physical situation is meant to prompt them with is their antagonism against the Lord. We're not implying that their words are against the Lord. We're told in verse 5, that the people spoke against God and against Moses. They are aligning themselves with heart and word against the person and words of Almighty God, and therefore the poison that's experienced in this snake bite is made worse by recognizing that they have poison in their hearts needing addressed. Within them, in their spiritual veins, they are not all well. This indeed is the problem of sin. Sin is the kind of bite that works its way deep. And we are not a people unbitten by transgression, if you will. We are a people who spiritually are in a Genesis 3 world with the very toxicity and poison of sin in our veins. And we are reminded in the writings of Paul in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. Even Adam and Eve were to be warned of turning against the Lord's wisdom and commandments and pursuing folly and rebellion. It is in the day that they would eat of what was forbidden, they would die. Turning against the Lord and death are a pair of things from the beginning. Which means when we see in the people of God here an experience of death, we are not surprised that it's in an episode of rebellion. Because rebellion and death come together over and over again in the stories of the Old Testament. And this fiery serpent is likely called that, this adjective fiery here, because of the bite and the feeling, the sting of what takes place upon the bite and the entrance of the poison. In verse 7, the people come to Moses and they say, we have sinned. I'll tell you what's helpful here to recognize in both of our stories this morning, the victory over the king of Arad and this story as well. In verse 2, after people from Israel were taken captive, they turned to the Lord. And here, even though they had spoken and done what was wrong, they now turn to the Lord, which is always the right move. It's called repentance. The quickest way in the right direction when you've been heading in the wrong one is not to take one more step in the wrong direction, but to turn. And what this generation of Israelites needs to do is something that's not characterized those that have been dying in the wilderness for 40 years. They need to turn to the Lord. And in verse 7, we have sinned. They need to acknowledge that. They need to recognize it is not a problem that's merely out there, but it is something we have done. We have sinned. We have not just made some small mistakes or miscalculation about this or that. I've sinned. That's what I have done. I've acknowledged it. I'm confessing that I have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord. They're describing what they've done. I haven't just sinned generally. I have sinned specifically. 
And I'm saying, here is the way in which I have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. We need an intercessor for us. Because what are we going to do? Save ourselves from the fiery serpents? That's not going to happen. Rather, they need an intercessor. And they say to Moses, you're the one. You pray. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. You know what doesn't characterize those that have been dying in the wilderness? These earlier stories don't consist of the rebellious Israelites saying to Moses, will you intercede for us? But that is what these do. It is what these do in verse 7. And Moses prays for the people. Yes, this is the same Moses who in Numbers 20 struck the rock twice. This is the same Moses who earlier in Numbers 11 felt awfully exasperated with the people and burdened. But he is an intercessor for them and he prays. The Lord's description, his instruction to Moses in verses 8 and 9 is the last part of our passage this morning. It's an instruction to craft something in the middle of the wilderness and to raise it up. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. I want to notice a few things about this passage. First of all, notice that Moses is instructed to make something that seems to reflect the same problem the people have. Fiery serpents are biting the people and Moses is told specifically to make one. Make a fiery serpent. And then while the serpents that are biting the people are going to be on the ground and, you know, aggravating the encampment, no doubt. This particular serpent is to be lifted up. It's to be raised so that it is visible. A height that's accomplished in the crafting of this serpent. Setting it up on a pole or raising it on a banner. This has the image, I think, of what tribal banners and flags would have for the Israelites and other nations. Things that are put on poles and lifted up above an encampment. And this is something that the whole people need. Which takes us to the third point. In this verse 8, everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. There is an open invitation that if you recognize that you yourself are in need of deliverance, God has provided this. But... The looking is what takes place. These people are not removing the poison of their own efforts. And they're not letting time pass so that uh, they could maybe show themselves to be especially strong or immune to the bite. They should not assume themselves immune. They should assume themselves struck and bitten and in dire need of deliverance. That would be the right read of their situation. And they should notice that God's provision will work for everyone who will look It doesn't say everyone who is bitten, most of them who look shall live. So, you know, I'm not sure if it'll be for you. It might be for your neighbor. But like, you know, why? What have you got to lose? I mean, you're going to die. So just let's see what will happen. Instead, they're told that everyone shall live who will look to God's provision. So we recognize here that God has made a provision in the midst of the camp. Moses, in verse 9, makes a bronze serpent. A bronze serpent. And the word for bronze is very similar in the original language for the word serpent. And even to the word fiery. So having something of this color seems to uh, be in keeping with the earlier references in chapter 19 to scarlet yarn and a red heifer. It's something that takes on a kind of hue or color that uh, fits even the image of shed blood from a spotless lamb at the tenth plague. 
And here this bronze serpent is crafted and set upon a pole. Moses obeys. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So you might wonder, okay, the Lord has said it, but but really, is that what would happen? I mean, maybe the Lord is just overstating what would happen. And he says, everyone who bites shall live. But then it turns out in the real experience of the people, it's not actually the case. We're told in verse 9 that if someone looked at the serpent, they lived. Just as the Lord had promised. His promises are shown to be fulfilled. Moses is an obedient mediator. The people who will die and are are, are perishing will now live and not perish. Looking at. This is a particular word that has a meaning of to, to gaze and look upon with earnestness. It's not like, well, you know, I happen to see this particular thing out of my peripheral vision. I was looking over here and I think I saw that. Yes, it's some kind of not even focused glance or even some kind of brief glimpse. Rather, the serpent raised up and set on a pole was to have a captivating and compelling reality for the people. That if they really believe what this serpent is, it's not going to be something they're merely glimpsing at. This is the source of God's power symbolized in that serpent upon a pole. Maybe it's even ironic that we see Moses is, descri- is told to make a serpent. We, we would have been not surprised at all if they had been bitten by serpents and God says, now make something else. Or, you know, make healing flow out of this rock. <laughs> you know, something that uh, maybe has, has resonated with earlier actions. We might think, well, if they're bitten by a serpent, why is he crafting a serpent? And this has intrigued readers over the years. One writer says the Lord has transformed a symbol of death into a source of life and deliverance. That in the hands of God, what would otherwise mean death and perishing for the people becomes a source of deliverance and life for the people. And I think it prepares us for the cross. We'll get to that in just a moment. By the initiative of God, as one writer puts it, the curse becomes the basis for salvation. It's not something other than a serpent that's crafted and lifted up, but a picture of a bronze serpent raised up to deliver the people. Now, you might imagine that after leaving this uh, wilderness area and the the, uh, deliverance accomplished in verse 9, the people might not just want to leave that serpent behind. And you would be right. They actually take it with them. We find a reference later to this bronze serpent In the days of 2 Kings, we learn that the bronze serpent had been preserved over the coming generations. And yet, what ends up happening with the bronze serpent is disturbing. The bronze serpent would later become, for the nation of Israel, an object that they venerated and worshipped. Something that they treated as a crafted thing that they went to and esteemed as if worshiping that was worshiping Yahweh. Here's the way 2 Kings talks about it. In 2 Kings 18, we learn that Hezekiah in the southern kingdom of Judah, he was 25 when he began to reign. And what he did was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all David his father had done. And here's what he did. He broke down pillars and cut down Asherah poles and removed high places. That's all references to pagan worship that Hezekiah overcame. And then we're told in 2 Kings 18.4, here's the reference. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent Moses had made. 
For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. And that's so like the kind of thing sinners can be tempted to do. To treat it with a kind of superstition, like a talisman or a rabbit's foot. Something that they look at and they think, oh, because of this particular external thing, if I can associate with it or pray to it or bring an offering to it, and they're treating it as if Yahweh doesn't reign above the heavens and the earth, but His power and something magical is possessed in the serpent. Hezekiah destroys it. Because he doesn't want the people to be idolatrous. Even though it memorialized that incident from much earlier in Numbers 21, it would not remain forever among the people of God because only God is to be worshipped, not a bronze serpent. And even that very story here in Numbers 21 points the way. Just like the Old Testament does as a whole to prepare the way for the Lord. How does Numbers 21 do it? Well, in John 3.16, this is an incredibly popular verse and rightly so in the New Testament The lead up to that is a reference to the story of Numbers 21. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, right? So Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So people looking to the serpent because they have the toxicity within them that will kill them. And if we recognize the poison of sin within our spiritual veins, we see Christ as the redeemer we need. And believing in Christ is like looking to the one lifted up. We look with the eyes of faith. It's to believe that he is who he says he is. That he's accomplished what he said he's accomplished. That it's Christ's perfect work that is sufficient. Those people in Numbers 21 did not deliver themselves. God delivered them through faith. They had to trust that what God... Maybe somebody said, I have been bitten by that servant, but you're telling me to look at that thing raised up on a pole? Come on, I know that's not the way this works. I know that's not going to deliver anybody. There's no way that with the problem I've got bitten by those creatures on the ground, that looking to that pole is going to do anything for me. What it requires is that if anybody looks at that lifted up serpent, they believe the promise of God that He will deliver them. It's a response of faith. It's trusting that in God's provision of the cross, somebody might look and say, well, I'm bitten by a serpent, and now you're going to lift up a serpent. Imagine those looking at the crucified one. Because according to the Jews, the cross is a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, it seems as foolishness. Because a cross was a symbol of condemnation and rejection. And yet the one who knew no sin became sin for us. It's the unthinkable and ironic turn of events. Where here, they might hope something other than a serpent will be what they are looking at. But it's as if this is taking on the bite. It's taking on and absorbing, if you will, right in there in the wilderness. What is wrong and alien, causing them to perish. That serpent points the way to Christ. We could say that with this language in John 3, Jesus is understanding rightly that the lifted serpent in the wilderness is a type. It is a type of Christ. That just as that serpent had in its symbolic stand the the, the place objectively for people to look and be delivered, Christ himself would be lifted up, the Son of Man. That whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Jesus isn't comparing himself to Moses in John 3. He doesn't say, well, as Moses did this, so the Son of Man. 
The comparison is not primarily with Jesus to Moses. It's with Jesus and the uplifted bronze serpent. That he who had no sin would become sin for us. To deliver us from spiritual death. We must look to Jesus. The Christian life is the life lived looking to Jesus. That's what we are doing. And we're trying to urge the nations to look to Jesus. We're trying to get them to see that we are a human encampment on this globe. That is struck by the Biden venom of sin. And that we cannot deliver ourselves. And in the gracious mercy of God, he has provided his one and only son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We are wanting people to look to Jesus. We're not telling people, you need to do better. You need to get it together. You need to save yourself. You need to find your own way. You need to live your best life. We're saying to people, you're going to perish if you don't look to Jesus. Jesus is salvation. It's not found outside of him. He doesn't just give you directions to it. Jesus himself is the saving mercy of God. We're saying to one another and to sinners, look to Jesus and live. And tomorrow morning when you wake up and you continue on this pilgrimage journey between redemption and inheritance in the land and the age to come, you look to Jesus And on Tuesday morning, you look to Jesus. And on Wednesday morning, you keep looking to Jesus. The Christian life is looking to Jesus, knowing that He is faithful to us. He has delivered us. We shall not die in our sins. The Son of Man was lifted up so that we would know life forever in Him. Let's pray together.